Welcome to Healthy by Choice, a broadcast designed to bring powerful healing into your life today. Gaining and maintaining optimum health is possible at any age. That's what thousands are learning at CHIP, the complete health improvement program offered across the country and around the world. You can learn more at chiphealth.com. But now, get ready to enjoy some proven results and priceless benefits. I'm your Healthy by Choice host, Charles Mills. A few years back, Dan Butner, the National Geographic researcher and author of the book The Blue Zone, which identified areas in the world where people live the longest, came to the home of Dr. Ellsworth Wareham in Loma Linda, California, to interview him. He found the good doctor out by his garden digging deep holes in the ground by hand in preparation for setting fence posts. The young journalist was shocked. Dr. Wareham, he called out with concern. You're 91 years old. You shouldn't be digging holes in the ground by hand. Isn't this a bit too much for a man of your age? We might find you in the hospital tomorrow. Sure enough, the very next day, he did find this 91-year-old surgeon in the hospital. There he was in the operating room assisting in a bypass surgery. Well, today that same post-hole-digging doctor is 100 years and counting, and I'm proud to say we've got him on the show with us today. Dr. Ellsworth Wareham, welcome to Healthy by Choice. Well, thank you for having me. Now, I don't know where to begin with you. You're a cardiac surgeon who has probably operated on more hearts than anyone else on the planet. So let's begin in the beginning. Why hearts, why surgery, and why you? Well, I don't believe I've operated on more hearts than anyone on the planet. (laughs) But, you know, I've done my share for the length of time uh, that I was active. And I was in World War II during the time that I was in the service. I decided I was going to become a surgeon. Mm -hmm. There are not very many people that were well-trained as surgeons in those days. It was before our extensive graduate programs came into being that we now have, there were very few really well-trained surgeons available, uh, even for a whole fleet Mm. where we had a hospital ship. Uh, Suffice it to say, I then took my graduate training after uh, coming back from the service and uh, became a cardiac surgeon. There was no cardiac surgery to speak of in those days. I started my residency in cardiac surgery in 1950, Mm -hmm. and the open-heart surgery with the heart-lung machine uh, did not come into full activity until 1955. I was one of the early people to be doing open-heart surgery. Mm -hmm. Now, what gave you the confidence to do that? You had been doing surgery before, non-open-heart surgery, and then you started doing that. What was it that just changed your mind that this is a possibility to do that type of surgery? That's very invasive surgery. Well, everything has come sort of gradually. Uh, Even the open-heart surgery, we did simpler types of cases where we just closed holes in the heart first. Uh, And the artificial valves did not come along until a few years later. It is accomplished just one step at a time. Sure, sure. Now, Dr. Wareham, when you are operating on someone, you, you have the heart there, I'm sure that you probably at that moment are thinking, why did they get here? What was the course of action that these people took to bring them to this point where here I am a surgeon with their heart in my hand? 
Has that course of action changed since 1950 to 2000? Has that course changed? Surgery certainly has changed, but has the course of action that people take to get them there changed at all? Uh, Most surgery uh, done these days on the heart is revascularization. Mm -hmm. That is, we try to bring uh, a fresh supply of blood into the heart because there's a structure of the coronary arteries. Uh, In the beginning, uh, we didn't have coronary artery surgery. Mm-hmm. Coronary artery surgery didn't come in until we'd been doing open heart surgery for about uh, 10 years. Oh. It was one of the later procedures that was done. Uh, it's quite a simple procedure. It was in 1967, as I recall, the first bypass surgery. Mm-hmm. The first open heart surgery using the heart-lung machine was done in 1953, so the reason for doing heart surgery has changed. It used to be what? Why, why did you do heart surgeries before? We were doing all sorts of complicated congenital heart lesions and valve lesions and things like that before we did the bypass graft. Oh. So uh, when the bypass graft came in, why, of course, uh, that greatly increased the volume of uh, surgery that we were doing. Mm-hmm. And right now, I would presume nine out of every 10 cases of open heart surgery is bypass grafts to the coronary arteries. And of course, that didn't occur to us that uh, maybe this was something that could be prevented. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, I must say that as a surgeon, you're concentrating on the immediate challenge at hand, if you know what I mean. And that's why, as surgeons, I think that it's a deficiency that one doesn't often think through uh, the total mm. implication of what is going on. Mm-hmm. Not much was discussed about prevention of coronary artery disease until Dr. Esselstyn of the Cleveland Clinic and Dr. Ornish of the University of San Francisco wrote some books on the prevention and the arrest of coronary artery disease. These folks took a group of patients and put them on a vegan diet, Mm -hmm. low-fat vegan diet, and actually proved by coronary angiography that they could arrest the disease, that it didn't progress any further, and in some cases, actually, the lesions absorbed and regressed. Mm -hmm. So that was a real step forward. And uh, I was greatly impressed by their work. Up till that time, uh, you could say, well, uh, I've treated this patient and he feels better. Mm -hmm. And he can uh, walk further and he can do more physically and the like. But uh, when you do a study of the coronary arteries where you put in radio-opaque material and take an X-ray and actually outline the coronary artery, so you can actually see it as a vessel. And when you can see that it has an obstruction in it or a constriction in it, and then that becomes better and uh, and disappears, you see, that's a scientific study. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did. So it sounds like you're saying to me that for the first part of your career, the very first part, you were helping people with what nature did to them. And for the latter part of your career, you're helping people for what they did to themselves with their diet. Am I on the right track by saying it that way? There's congenital heart disease. Uh That is where the heart is born 
defective. Yes, yes. It has a defective valve. It has a hole in the partitions of the uh, that divide the heart up and so forth. You're born with that. That's congenital heart disease. That was the first heart disease that we corrected using the heart lung machine. Mm-hmm. The next uh, phase was the treatment of valves. And artificial valves were developed, and so we could take the defective valves out and put it in an artificial valve. Mm-hmm. And then the third phase that we got into was the coronary artery bypass graft. Mm. Well, this is pretty amazing. We're talking with Dr. Ellsworth Wareham. He has been a cardiac surgeon for longer than most people have lived, and he's lived a long time, too. And uh, he is a firm believer in, in health and in helping people reverse their diseases. And Dr. Wareham, when you look back on your long career, what has changed as far as what you as a doctor know? You knew how to go in there and help uh, with, uh, with the lesions. You knew how to help with the valves. You knew how to help with those uh, genetic problems. What has changed as far as your knowledge? How would you treat a heart person different now that came in and said, look, I'm having some problems with my heart? What would you be looking for? First, of course, you've got to consider what the cause of it is. And if the cause of it is arteriosclerotic heart disease, Mm -hmm. that's coronary artery disease. Now, of course, a cardiologist would probably put that person on a program so that you wouldn't see him as a surgeon. Hmm. You want to remember that the surgeon gets to see the patient because he's referred by a cardiologist. Yes. And so the cardiologist treats those things that he can treat. And one of the things they do these days is use a lot of stents mm-hmm. instead of referring the person for bypass crafts. Now, you understand a stent is where you stick in a little device that expands where it's constricted. Mm-hmm. You follow me? Yes, yes. And you can do that with a catheter. You can push the catheter up through the artery around to the base of the aorta and feed a device into the coronary artery and expand the coronary artery and actually leave a little metal device that keeps it pried open. Mm-hmm. A stent. So the cardiologist will do that to a large number of these, and so the number coming to the surgeon is fewer than it used to be, but then there's a matter of putting a person on a program for the prevention of the advancement of the disease, and that's the leading edge now. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. When the stent has been placed in there, or let's say that the bypass has happened, is that patient fixed? Is the problem gone? Can life now return back to normal and everything's okay? Well, let me use an example. President Bill Clinton, Uh he had uh, bypass grass done following a heart attack in 2004. And uh, he was taken to the hospital, and they, did, and they did four bypass grafts on him, what we call a quadruple bypass graft, mm-hmm. using veins of his legs. Well, he went along until 2010. He got that much time out of his bypass grafts, and then he started to have a return of his symptoms. Mm-hmm. So he goes back in, and they put in a couple of stents. And it was then that he realized, and he got expert counsel, as you can be sure, that what he had was a disease that was progressive and had to be prevented. And the stents were not the answer because they were close too, you see. 
and that he had a progressive disease. And so he came under the influence of Dr. Esselstyn of the Cleveland Clinic and Dr. Ornish, uh, who had written these books on the prevention of coronary disease, and they did it on a vegan diet. Now, it's interesting. The general concept is that to prevent coronary disease, uh, you have to stay away from the animal fats. In other words, when you have your beef steak, you trim the fat off, and then you just eat the, the protein. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, anybody that knows meat knows that the fat is distributed clear through the meat. It isn't just in the concentrations, you know, by itself. It's right in the actual structure of the muscle itself. Mm-hmm. So he realized that he had to do something. Now, a fellow by the name of T. Colin Campbell, he says, on his study that he made on coronary disease on the Chinese, he found out that it was the animal proteins Mm. that were the chief culprits. Now, uh, I have to say this, that there are a lot of people that still think that the animal fats are the chief cause of coronary artery disease. But Campbell says it's the animal proteins. Mm. So when it comes right down to it, you see, you're not left with any animal products at all. Because most animal products, whether they're eggs or or whether it's lean meat or so forth, are largely protein. So Clinton, you see, got on to the Esselstyn program. In fact, Esselstyn makes an issue over the eating refined foods. Mm -hmm. Uh, He uh, saw... uh, television program, and Clinton was eating a white roll of bread. (laughs) He called him up, told him, I saw what you were doing. He says, there are lots of vegans, he says, that have coronary disease, and they're doing what you're doing. They're eating refined foods. Mm -hmm. So you have to eat a whole plant-based diet. Well, you have identified, of course, the cutting edge now of heart disease prevention, and that is the whole food plant-based diet. And you have seen that come into being here. You are now promoting it, and that is probably why, and let me ask you straight out, is that why you have lived as long as you have lived? Have you followed this diet as you learned it, and have you established it in your own family? Well, I grew up on a farm Uh in Alberta, Canada, my folks used some meat. They didn't use a lot, but I never did care for animal products. I, I used to milk the cows and, and take care of the chickens, and I never did eat, eat eggs as such. That is, boiled eggs and scrambled eggs and fried eggs. Mm-hmm. My mother, of course, would use it in the cooking, but as far as eating them just as a sole food, no, I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. I, of course, uh, like other people, had the impression that you couldn't get proper nutrition without some animal products. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, of course, is still prevalent in a lot of people's minds. But as time has gone on, we realize now, if you take a little vitamin B12, uh, you can eat a straight vegan diet and get along perfectly all right. Okay. So anyhow, I was naturally a vegan, and when I found out I didn't need to have animal products, they were gone. I think that it contributes to my good health. Now, one person doesn't prove anything. But let me say this, that if you reverse coronary artery disease on a vegan diet, it stands to reason that if you're on that diet, 
that you're not going to develop coronary disease. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> uh, you know, if I have a pain in my chest, it isn't a coronary. I'm not running down to the emergency room and doing a uh, ECG. I know I won't have coronary disease because my blood cholesterol is 117. My, my. Now, very few people have ever had a heart attack. Some of the leading centers in this country that, that treat coronary disease, like, like the Framingham people and so forth, yes. have never seen a person have a heart attack under 150. Mm. Mine is 117. <laughs> I've lost a thousand pounds. I like to tell people I always find them again too. Uh, I've struggled throughout my life with my weight. I've always been heavy. It's important to me that you know I stick around to see my grandchildren live a healthy life and life expectancy. And I've lived a very long time, very luckily. You know, I, I'm one of the typical examples of what you call uh, living by luck, not by choice. Through the CHIP program, I have learned how to be a smarter shopper. I spend time at the grocery store reading labels and comparing products as to which things are my healthiest choices. I learned how well nutrition can reverse many of the diseases that we have in our country. One of my blood pressure medicines uh, reduced by 50%. I expect uh, when I go back to the doctor, there will be even a further reduction. I've lost 47 pounds since I started. You know, I lost a lesser amount of weight during the first 40 days, but I've continued on since the CHIP program. But during the program itself, my biggest uh, drop was in my cholesterol level. My cholesterol level was 205 before it was 154 after. My triglycerides went down, my blood pressure stayed the same, uh, all my other factors went down. I think it's honestly helped our relationship. Yeah. And it's more exciting to when we're walking around the track, we're talking and we're asking about our day, whereas we would have been sitting on the couch and like eating and watching Netflix or watching a movie together. So it's definitely, I think, brought our relationship stronger and, and in a more healthy way in numerous, I think, avenues. The biggest thing with CHIP is that it's, it's a lifestyle that you can sustain because it's something you don't have to measure, you just do. We're not waiting till we're 60 and getting a stint in our heart, being diagnosed with some kind of high blood pressure or high cholesterol. We're trying to do this as a preventative thing, so we're choosing to be healthy, not waiting for a prescription. It's a lifestyle, it's not a diet. It's a way of living to be healthy, happy, and productive. Ready to make some changes in your life? Visit chiphealth.com. It's never too late to begin living the healthy life. chiphealth.com. We're talking with Dr. Ellsworth Wareham. He has a low cholesterol and a high number of birthdays, 100 years and counting. He's living in Loma Linda, California, and we're talking about his life in cardiac surgery. This is a man who has gone around the world. Let's talk about that just for a moment. You have gone to countries like Pakistan, Greece, Vietnam, Cambodia, Saudi Arabia, and you went there with a purpose. Tell us why you were in those countries and what you were able to accomplish there for the good of the people who live there. We got our start going overseas in 1963, uh -huh. and we're actually sponsored by uh, 
Vice President Lyndon Johnson. Uh-huh. We had operated on a child that had been referred to us through his good graces. This child came from Pakistan, and then the people in Pakistan, everybody heard about it and wanted to send their children over to the United States to have their children operated on. And so it was suggested to Vice President Johnson that a team be sent over. And so it was that he suggested that we go to Pakistan to do cardiac surgery. And that's the way we got our start. Now, after we had been to Pakistan and done cardiac surgery, uh, we got invitations to other places. But we made up our mind that if we went to a country to do cardiac surgery, that they should provide us with a team of local people Mm. whom we could train Mm -hmm. so that we could establish a permanent program in that country. We realized that for us to go, we have to close down our program at home and uh, be gone for a few weeks, and we can do 40 or 50 patients, but then then, then, then that's all there is to it. So our next invitation we had to go abroad was to go to Greece, and we asked the Greek people to provide us with a cardiac surgeon and the cardiologist and the various technicians that uh, are involved in doing cardiac surgery, and that we would train that. So we worked with them in Greece, and then we brought them back to the United States and gave them further supervision here, and we established a team. So it's not only that we went to the country and did the surgery ourselves as a team, we actually trained a local team, Mm -hmm. to do cardiac surgery. And we did this in several countries. And uh, the first one we did did it in was Greece. Mm -hmm. And and I'm happy to say that we were able to influence a NASA's organization, you know, Aristotle and NASA's, and Mary Jackie Kennedy. Yes. Anyhow, uh, he died, but his foundation built a cardiac hospital in the city of Athens. I, I visited it several years ago. It's, uh, I think, 200 beds or something like that. Fine hospital. Uh, we went to Hong Kong, and we were able to get them to establish a cardiac team there also. And uh, we did the same thing in, in Saudi Arabia. We had a program in Saudi Arabia did more patients than we did here at Loma Linda. In fact, the one in Greece does more than we do at Loma Linda. So... Uh, we went there and worked, but we made it part of the total program that they would have to provide a team that we would train so that they have a permanent program. Now, I have been instructed by Dr. Hans Deal to ask you this next question because he says it's very important to you, and here it is. What causes heart disease? Is it stress? Does stress cause heart disease? This is a point that a lot of people have a problem with. What's your take on this? You've been at it for a long time. Does stress cause heart disease? (laughs) Well, let me say, I'm not a researcher, and I'm not an authority on a lot of those things. But uh, I will summarize the thing by stating that chief cause of coronary artery disease. Now, you're using a broad-term yes, heart disease. coronary artery disease, yes. Yeah. But you're, you're talking about coronary artery disease. Yeah. The chief cause, by far, by far, is diet, mm. what you eat. Mm-hmm. Now, I know this is important to exercise. Your general lifestyle contributes 
to uh, the health of your coronary arteries. And I'm sure that stress uh, may have uh, some very minor part in it, but the big thing is what you're eating. So if someone wants to live to be 100 years old, if someone wants to get rid of the coronary artery disease that is plaguing them, if they have angina, if they have uh, problems walking upstairs, if they have palpitations, you're saying that the very first thing they need to do is check what's in their cupboards, in their kitchen. Am I on the right track here? Yes, you're exactly right. And it's so simple. It's so simple. It isn't as if you have to take and have a Ph.D., in uh, biochemistry to figure it out. <laughs> you just eat a plant-based diet. Mm. You know, a full plant-based diet. Well, I want you to... I want to end the program, Dr. Wareham, with you giving your your advice to the world. If you could talk to the world, you're talking to a bunch of people on this show, if you could talk to the world, what would you say to them to encourage them to move to that plant-based diet? Why should they do it, and what are the benefits they can look forward to if they do? Well, the benefits are, are just tremendous. As I've said, you're looking at the major, major cause of coronary artery disease. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I would like to take and leave in everybody's mind is that your taste buds can be educated. Mm-hmm. I read this in the Wall Street Journal, in January of 2013, a fine article about your taste buds can be educated. And it was opened up with a sentence that says, all tastes are required except for breast milk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now think that over. In other words, if you're eating food, it's because you have been trained to eat that food. And you can be trained to like any food. It's like Bill Clinton. He's on that vegetable (laughs) diet, vegan diet, and he loves it. You see, give yourself about three months and start in gradually. It's like, for example, taking salt. Mm -hmm. Most people use too much salt. Mm -hmm. Well, how are they going to change? You're going to use a little less and a little less and a little less. And after a while, give yourself three or four months, you can get by with half the salt you're now eating. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, the recommended amount of salt for a person to eat is not much for a day. You're talking about a teaspoon. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. And an average male eats two and a half teaspoons a day. And and, uh, salt is a real enemy. We're not talking now about animal products. We're talking about this plain, ordinary salt. Same thing holds true of sugar. If you're addicted to the use of sugar and rich foods... You can gradually change your taste buds. They can be changed. All tastes are acquired except for breast milk. Well, if we have any doubt at all about what you're saying, we just simply need to look at your experience, look at your past. You've been at this thing longer than most of us have lived. And you know, Dr. Wareham, I tend to believe you because I think, number one, you have the experience, but number two, you have the heart for what you're saying here. And we really appreciate you spending time with us today, Dr. Ellsworth Wareham. Thank you so much for being on our program. It's been a pleasure, and thank you. And until next time, listener, this is Charles Mills along with Dr. Ellsworth Wareham inviting you to be healthy by choice. Goodbye, everyone.
If you'd like more information about Healthy by Choice, call Three Angels Broadcasting Network at 618-627-4651. You can also email us through our website at 3abn.org. Music.